According to the Apostle Paul, the gospel is not incredible. It's not impossible to affirm. He says that in verse 8. In fact, the events fundamental to the salvation message happened in public. Paul says, not in a corner, not hidden away in the shadows. They happened in public and can be verified. The gospel, then, is a factual record of God's saving work in Christ. It's a report. It's a record. It's a message relayed to you and to me. And it demands a response. It is not like so much news that we might easily ignore today. News on the television or news in our social media feeds, just just scroll through them or don't open it up at all. You can easily ignore so much news today. But the gospel report always includes this question, do you believe it? That's what Paul said to King Agrippa. He wasn't content just to tell the report, to issue the story and and sort of leave Agrippa to decide how or if to respond to it. No, he, he presses him. Do you believe it? And so what we have in this text is for the third time, Paul telling how Christ confronted him and tasked him to tell others the truth that he had come to believe. So we want to spend just a little bit of time thinking about that report. What is the report? What is so important that Paul, three times at least in this book, would tell it to other people, especially important people? But this text also ends with three possible responses to the gospel, which can be the difference between life and death. And so this chapter can help us believe the gospel. It can also help us be more faithfully evangelistic, like the Apostle Paul, especially if we respond properly to these two questions. First question is this, what is the call of the gospel? What is the call of the gospel? To answer that question, let me briefly uh, sketch the context of this chapter. For two years, the Apostle Paul had been locked up on fraudulent charges. Exercising his right as a Roman citizen, he appealed to have Caesar hear his case. Now, the Judean governor Festus, who we heard about in this chapter, had no clue what to write concerning Paul and his appeal, who would be, uh, as he would be sent to Rome. And so he asked King Agrippa to hear Paul's story and offer his advice. And so that's basically what we have in this chapter. It's a sort of a legal review of Festus looking for help from another official, saying, what do I say about him as I send him in his appeal to Rome? And so Festus defers to Agrippa, and Agrippa says, Paul, you may speak for yourself. Let's hear what your case is all about. And so the Apostle Paul takes this opportunity to once again give his personal testimony. He was especially eager, we read in verse 3, to testify to a man, namely Agrippa, who was familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And so Paul, standing important in front of this important man, begged Agrippa to listen to him patiently. 
What an important request. When God speaks, we should listen intently, refusing to harden our hearts to his message. Paul, in saying to Agrippa, friend, listen patiently, is essentially paraphrasing what Jesus often said during his own public ministry. Mark 4, a few times. In Mark 7, for example, Jesus said to the crowds, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen patiently. If you have ears to hear, use those ears in your listening to the gospel. And so Paul tells, tells Agrippa, listen up, and then he begins his testimony by summing up his life. He reminds Agrippa that he was raised as a Pharisee, the strictest party of the Jewish religion. And more importantly than that, what Paul says here is that what he had believed as a Pharisee in in the main, in, in the main part, he still believed. The God who cannot lie vowed to raise the dead. Paul says, I've always believed that. Growing up as a Pharisee, being trained under the strictest regimen of our religion, I've always believed that's, that's the fundamental thing that Jewish people believe in, Paul says. At least the real believers. The Old Testament clearly in many places promises that a descendant of David would rise from the dead as a first fruit of the resurrection of the godly. You could think of Psalm 16, for example. Paul says, we've always believed this. We've always believed that God would send one to effect a resurrection for us. And and he adds this to uh, Agrippa. The God who made heaven and earth can raise the dead, right? That shouldn't be seen as incredible. If, if, in other words, to put it negatively, if God can't raise the dead, then what are, then what are we talking about? Why are we using the word God? Right? If, there, if, if this being can't raise the dead, then how is he divine? So, so Paul says to Agrippa, I've always believed in the fundamental truth that we needed a resurrection. We need a savior to bring us to new life. And yet Paul adds honestly, because in his pre-converted state, he rejected the claim that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth was that first fruits of the resurrection. He tried to exterminate Christianity. He summarizes, doesn't he, some of the, the lengths to which he went to try to exterminate Christianity. But he also says this, God had other plans for me. God had other plans for me. The risen Lord Jesus confronted me in my unbelief and commanded me to witness about him so that other unbelievers might, as Paul says in verse 18, turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And Paul says, I've been faithful to that heavenly vision. I've been faithful to that call. I've been telling um, everyone exactly what the prophets had foretold, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to Jews and Gentiles. Paul's defense is masterful. He's saying, look, there's nothing peculiar about my belief. I believe in the Messiah, and I've become convinced that what the Old Testament says about the Messiah can only be speaking about Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so I've been faithful to tell people. That's all I've done. And so Paul is saying here that he's on trial for believing God and telling others that they must believe him too. But notice what what Paul is doing here. He's not simply defending himself. He's not simply promoting his innocence. He's not simply telling his story. He's also declaring a message that obliges everyone who hears it to repent, to turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So see what he's doing. He's, he's telling the gospel. He's not, he, so as he's telling his story, he's saying, look, this is it, guys. Festus, Agrippa, anyone else who's hearing me? I'm just being obedient to the heavenly vision. The Lord Jesus is the Christ. The one that the Old Testament promised. You have to believe in him. And you must become faithful to his call, his commands. And so, he, he answers the question, what is the gospel message? It is a proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he has come in the flesh to keep the law for his disobedient people, to suffer the penalty of the curse of the law against sinners in his own flesh, and to rise again in new glory and to extend to all who believe in him that same glory. That's a summary of the gospel that Paul feels was necessary to share as he's asked to defend himself. The close of the chapter presents three responses to this message. And these responses can help us also examine our response to the gospel message. And so I want to answer this question second. How will you respond to the gospel? How will you respond to the gospel? Um, The first two examples are negative examples. First, we see the example of the skeptic, Festus, that governor of Judea, who was looking for help uh, from Agrippa to try to figure out what to do with this prisoner, how to, what to say about him as he sends him to Rome. Festus is listening in, although Paul is primarily speaking to Agrippa. And verse 24 tells us that Festus loudly interrupted Paul with these words, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Isn't that something Paul had said to Agrippa? Agrippa, would you listen to me patiently? Well, Festus failed that test. I mean, to listen to someone patiently at least means don't interrupt them loudly and call them crazy. But that's what Festus is doing here. Festus failed to hear the gospel patiently because to him, the message about Jesus Christ seemed foolish. So he's really just being honest here. He says, this guy's crazy. He's going on and on about this this person who was dead and is now alive and 
He's putting all of his hope in this person? Paul, then you're crazy. But, of course, the problem was, was his problem, not Paul's problem. This, this is a perception issue. He, he's not, of course, a competent judge of spiritual matters. As 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, you, you catch the irony, I hope. Paul, uh, so, Festus says to Paul, you're talking like a fool. You're, you're out of your mind. You're, you're, your extensive learning is driving you crazy. You're a fool, Paul. The Bible says Festus was the fool. Spiritual things are foolishness to him because, because he's not spiritually discerned like the things of God are. The spirit of Festus is alive today, isn't it? Be a little religious if you want, but too much theology will make you a fanatic. Right? That's what Festus says to Paul. Paul, I think you've got to stop studying so much. I think you've got to stop reading those scrolls. I think you've got to stop consulting with the prophets. I think you've got to sp- stop spending all of your time contemplating this Jesus. Paul, be a little religious. Dabble. But too much learning is driving you mad. But of course, the Apostle Paul realized that, that just the opposite were true. To Paul, learning... And true godliness go hand in hand. It's remarkable to me that uh, in what was probably the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, so near the end of his life, in a letter in which Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. So just imagine what he's saying here. You can, you can picture a, a priest bringing a drink offering in some vessel. And he's, he's approaching the altar and he's, he's about to pour it out. And some of the liquid, be it uh, olive oil or whatever it might be, is, is already pouring out. It's about to be poured out. That vessel's about to be empty. Paul says, that's me. My, I'm already being poured out. He says, I've, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and, and so on. And yet, he asks Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.13, to send him his books. <laughs> it's incredible. He, he wants to keep learning. He wants to keep reading the books that tell him about the Lord. He, he's, he's got one foot in the grave. And he says, send me my books, Timothy. This is one of his last instructions in 2 Timothy 2.15, as the King James puts it, study to show thyself approved unto God. Paul is saying, you study so that you can be approved. And Paul practiced what he preached. He did study. He dove into the word of God. He meditated on it. He loved the Bible. Much learning was not making Paul mad. It was drawing him closer to Jesus. Of course, not all learning does that. It is true that 
much learning of the wrong kind can drive you mad. But meditative study of Scripture will draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, then, must be an intellectual and academic institution. The Heidelberg Catechism says in interpreting the fourth commandment in question and answer 103 that you diligently frequent the house of God in order to learn what the word of God teaches. Right? We, we come to God's house to learn, to study, right? to, to show ourselves approved of God. So Festus is, a, is 100% wrong. Much learning was not driving Paul mad. Much learning was drawing Paul to Jesus. And we need to follow in Paul's footsteps to learn much and to teach much in the church so that we might be faithful witnesses. Now, I find it also interesting how the Apostle Paul responds to Festus. I don't know how you would respond if you're giving your personal testimony and somebody says loudly, interrupting you, you're, you're crazy. What I just heard is the stupidest thing I've heard all day. How would you respond? Paul answered Festus graciously. Um, perhaps exaggeratedly, but graciously. He calls Festus most excellent. <laughs> I doubt that Festus was truly most excellent. But the point here is that Paul is being gracious. He's got, he's got a, a spiritually ignorant heckler. And he is gracious in response. Um, Paul responds to Festus briefly. He sticks to the facts. He simply points out that the events of Jesus' ministry are public knowledge, not the theories of speculative theologians. He says, no, Festus, you've just misunderstood. I'm studying things that are a public knowledge that have happened not in a corner, but on a public stage. Right? If, if, if you're not aware of these things, um, you're the ignorant one is essentially what Paul is saying here. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't press Festus. He defends himself against being foolish, but he doesn't press him. Paul can sense that Festus isn't listening. He doesn't have the ears to hear. And so he doesn't press him any longer. Instead, he turned to Agrippa. But in his interaction with Festus, we are warned against responding to the gospel message as a skeptic, outright rejecting it as foolishness. You must not respond that way. There's a second response that we see in Acts 26, and that is what I would call the sympathizer. That doesn't sound nearly as bad as the skeptic. That's the response of Agrippa. Paul was hopeful, in his own words, that Agrippa would believe the message of the prophets, that Agrippa could not have missed how Jesus fulfilled their message, because, as he says, Agrippa knew the, uh, the teaching of the Jews. He was acquainted with the things that had happened in Jerusalem lately, so um, he, he's, he's hopeful. He knows that, that Christ's teaching and his death and his resurrection were public events. Paul knows that Jesus was crucified during the Jewish Holy Week. Right? So this was not on an obscure, you know, uh, Monday morning or 
you know, Wednesday afternoon. This is, this is the Passover. This is the Holy Week. Jerusalem would have been packed with Jewish pilgrims and probably additional Roman personnel for peacekeeping and other needs. Jesus' resurrection was witnessed, he later writes in 1 Corinthians 15, by over 500 people, many of whom were still alive. He says in Acts 10, verse 37, uh, uh, Peter does rather, that Jesus' life was well known throughout all Judea, even among Gentiles. Peter there is speaking to Cornelius, a Roman Gentile centurion. He says, you know, you, you simply know. It's like one of these news events that you'd have to be living under a rock to not know about. So Paul is hopeful that Agrippa knew, of course, about Jesus, how he had fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so Paul urges Agrippa, after he's finished presenting the good news about Jesus, to close with Christ, as the Puritans used to say. Agrippa, you know all the facts. These things weren't done in a corner. You're familiar with the Jewish prophecies. You know who this Christ was going to be. Isn't it clear, brother, that Jesus is the Christ? He's, he's pressing him to, to, to finish the deal, to put his trust in Jesus, not just to be acquainted with the facts of Christianity, which, of course, saves nobody, but to close with Christ. He wasn't just sharing information. He put the question and called for an answer. That's faithful witnessing, isn't it? And Agrippa responded, and I don't say this as a compliment, sympathetically. He responded sympathetically. Um, You might say as as a polite objector. He's not a skeptic like Festus. He's not rude. He doesn't interrupt Paul. He doesn't call him names. No. What Agrippa does is he, he tries to walk a middle way. He does sound like a politician, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't want to upset Paul. He kind of wants to keep Paul on his side. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to upset Festus. Surely he wants to keep Festus on his side. So he sympathizes. I'm sympathetic to that man. That, there, there's something true about what you just said. That is well said. For now, he could say that he appreciated Christianity, but that's as far as he would go. After all, how could he agree with Paul, being a politician, after Festus has just called him a lunatic? I mean, how, how is that going to look? Being a, becoming a Christian would have stigmatized Agrippa and compromised his political aspirations. As a polite objector, Agrippa can say that he has nothing against Paul. Right? He, he agreed, as the after uh, conversation makes clear in verse 30 and following, that Paul could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. So what Agrippa is acknowledging is that um, you know, there's, there's nothing against the law of Rome in the Christian faith, the Christian faith is perfectly compatible with uh, natural law and uh, our appeal to justice and so on. I find nothing wrong with Paul. His message is fine. Probably would be good for a lot of people if they became Christians. Agrippa was willing to let Paul place his hope in Christ, but not willing to do so himself. 
That's a sympathizer. And so it is with many today, respectful of Christianity, but not willing to commit. I would think that's a problem in the churches of Jesus Christ as well. There are people who are sympathetic to Christianity, but who are not willing to commit, who are not willing to go all the way and say, I am here today to place my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says. We mustn't respond like that. But there is a third way, and that is the response, you might say, that perhaps is a strange way of looking at it, but the response of the Apostle Paul to his own message. Agrippa's waffling brings us to the third type of response to the gospel, and it is what we might label as the saint. The skeptic, the sympathizer, and the saint. Paul responds to Agrippa with these words in verse 29, effectively saying, I wish that everyone who hears the gospel might become such as I am, except for these chains. Well, of course, then through the Spirit, he's talking to you and to me. He's saying, I I wish everyone, not just you, Agrippa, not just you, Festus, but anyone who hears this, I wish you were like me. I wish you would respond in the way that I've responded. What does Paul mean by that? What does he want for you? What does he want from me? Well, he wants this. He knows that true faith in Christ, going all the way with Jesus, will give you a relief from a guilty conscience. Surely, that's Paul. What a, what a conscience to overcome persecuting the saints. But Paul's found relief from a guilty conscience. True faith in Christ will give you knowledge that God loves you. It will give you an unshakable identity in Christ that doesn't have to be rooted in sexuality or in politics or in your vocation or anything else. Faith in Christ will give you a felt purpose for living Genuine wisdom for navigating this world. Boldness in the face of opposition. Perspective in the midst of trial. A firm hope of eternal life. And we could say many more things, of course, that were true of Paul, that Paul wants us to experience. I wish that you were like me. I wish you had what I had. I wish you knew the Lord in the way that I know Him. Will you respond like that? That's what he's saying to us through the Spirit today. Is there anything that's keeping you from following Paul in following Christ wholeheartedly? Remember that when Christ overtook Paul, he observed this, as Paul said in verse 14 of our text, the Lord speaking to Paul says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The, the picture here is of, of a kind of restraint that one might put on, on a beast of burden or a horse or a mule that the person would want to ride. And, and, and the Lord Jesus says, Paul, you're, you're kicking, you're fighting, you're resisting. God had been leading Paul along the path of faith, but Paul resisted kicking against Christ's shepherd's staff. 
And we can do the same thing. Powerful forces like nature and conscience tell us that God exists. That's almost impossible to shake from a rational mind. And that if there is a God who made us, then he deserves our allegiance. Many of us have heard about Jesus our whole lives. Are we fighting against his call on our lives? Instead, the Spirit says to us, through the example of the Apostle Paul, stop fighting, listen to Jesus, put your trust in him, repent of your sins, obey all of God's commands, and receive the gift of gracious salvation. Understand the gospel, you must. But more than that, you and I must respond with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll be, like Paul, saints, sanctified by the Holy Spirit and truly fit for eternity with God. Amen. Let's pray together. O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gospel, for this message, this factual record of the ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Facts that did not happen in a corner, in the shadows, but in public, in packed city, under the scrutiny of Roman officials, These things happened. We pray that you would help us to respond to the gospel record appropriately. That we would put our faith in Jesus and that we who do so by the Spirit's leading would become, as Paul, faithful witnesses of the works of God in us. Help us, we pray, in that task, wherever we may be in life, to faithfully testify to your grace given to us. Glorify yourself through your servants, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond by singing number 493 from the Trinity Psalter hymnal, Savior, teach me day by day.
receive the Lord's departing benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.